Yeah, and if you guys do have any interest in that um, mission trip, like Jen said, come out after second service, and it's just going to be 10 or 15 minutes. And um, there's no commitment. You're not signed up because you came. We're just kind of seeing if if we have enough people to go. The Haiti one, as I mentioned, will be, um, it, that'll be just guys. And it'll be, um, it'll be more of a work project, helping uh, Pastor Leo finish up the school he started there in Haiti, an amazing ministry going on. And then the one in Belize, that is kind of contingent on, Haiti's like totally open right now. Belize is only semi-open. So um, going to Belize is kind of contingent on, on it opening up because we'll be doing more um, like VBS and some, some outreach kind of ministry there. So if you're interested in either one of those, come and find out. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. And we just, we need your touch, Lord. Lord, we need your, we need your spirit in our lives. Just thinking of that song, I am set for you, Lord. And so many of us need to be set for you, Lord. We need to experience your grace. And we pray that you would just meet us this morning and minister to us, Lord. We ask that in your name. Amen. So, you know, every, can I take this off? Um, every pastor has their own sort of methods of, of sermon prep. And when I'm getting ready to teach a lesson, you know, I usually start, I'll read through the text a few times. And, and as I start to read through the text a few times, you know, the, 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 the themes will sort of fall into place and, and the points will kind of present themselves. And usually when I read through a text, I, I know where I'm going with that text pretty quickly. Usually on, you know, the, the first couple times through, it's, okay, this is, this is what I'm doing some commentaries, and maybe I'll look at the Greek a little bit, you know, and, and kind of dig in a little bit. As I first began to peruse this passage, the first thing I noticed is, wow, this isn't a super exciting portion of Scripture, right? It's not a, a very oft-quoted passage of Scripture. In fact, most of the second half of Acts 18 is just sort of a, a travel journal. You know, we went here, we did this. But as I read through it and kind of dug in and considered it, I think there are, there are a few things and there are a few nuggets, a few lessons that we, can, that we can take home, a few things that we can really glean from these verses. And I think it's worth taking our time to, um, to really work through. And I think we find that a lot of times we, when, we, when we read through a portion of Scripture that doesn't seem particularly exciting when it's not the John 3.16, right? When, when they're not those exciting verses, I find that when you really take time and dig in, often there's a lot there. Last time when we were in Acts 18, we spent a lot of time looking at verses 9 and 10. And it says this. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. 
Now, I don't want to spend too much time reviewing this morning, but I want to spend a couple minutes kind of setting the stage for the passage that we're going to look at. Paul, at this point, he's been through some pretty serious hard times, right? He's been through some pretty significant trials and tribulations. And he's tired. And he's scared. Right? He's afraid to go on. It seems like at this point, the Apostle Paul is just, he's, he's emotionally spent. Right? It seems like he just doesn't have the emotional bandwidth to go on. He's not looking forward to, to the rejection and to the beatings and prison. He's not looking forward to the, to the grief of, of seeing lost people reject Christ. And it seems like he's living in a little bit of fear of, of what the future holds for him. And remember, the Lord speaks to Paul. And he says, look, I'm with you. I have you. I'm by your side. He says, I promise no harm is going to come to you while you're in Corinth. And I think that we can take comfort in that. Wherever you are in life, if you're a child of God, he has you. And that doesn't always mean that he's going to remove you from hard times. But he'll always see us through those difficult times. Remember what King David said. He said, I trust in God. So why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? That's Psalm 5611 in the New Living Translation. Paul would later go on to write Romans chapter 8. And as you may know, Romans chapter 8 is a particularly powerful chapter. And I'm going to read a few verses from this chapter. And listen to what Paul says. And think about all that Paul has been through. Think about all of his sufferings and all of his trials and all of his tribulations as he writes this in Romans 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him graciously to all, give with him graciously, give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. In verse 35 he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then look what he says in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I like how the New Living Translation uh, renders verse 37. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Don't you like that? Overwhelming victory is ours. Paul says, look, we as believers, we're not just eking out a victory. Right? We're not winning by a last second field goal. Right? He says it's an overwhelming victory. We're not, we're not just winning the match, Paul says. We're getting a tech ball. It's, it's utter domination. It's complete victory. That, church, that's what we have in Christ. Look what he says in verse 32. He says, look, he gave us his son. How will the Father not also, with the Son, graciously give us all things? Paul says, look, the Father sent his Son to die for you. If he loved you that much that he sent his Son to die, don't you think that he's going to continue to take care of you? To me, that's, that's powerful. That's something that we can reflect on in the midst of difficult times. The second thing we looked at in that passage, Jesus tells Paul in verse 10, he says, I have many people in this city. And remember, as far as we know, there was no church established in Corinth. There weren't, there weren't any believers or any large number of believers in Corinth. But what we saw is that God had other plans. The Holy Spirit had been working in the hearts and in the lives of, of many people. And well in advance of Paul's arrival, the Lord was doing a work. He had been preparing the hearts and the spirits of lost men, preparing them to receive that, that gospel message, that message of hope that Paul was bringing them. And the, the lesson for us there is that the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of people all around us. And some of God's people don't even know that they're God's people yet. Right? Some of God's people are still living in open hostility to God. Still living in open rebellion to God. They're still shaking their fists towards heaven. Not even realizing the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives. Not even realizing that the Holy Spirit is, is drawing them unto himself. And there are some people who are ready right now. There are some people who are, who are ready to turn from their sins. And all they're waiting for is you. All they're waiting for is that gospel message. All they're waiting is, is to hear the good news of the gospel. And, and they're going to repent. Verse 11, it says, And he stayed 
a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. So we find Paul here camped out in Corinth for 18 months. That's much longer than he usually stayed at his church plants. Usually it says something like, you know, he, he tarried three Sabbath days and then he went to so-and-so. But here, he stays 18 months. And it says that the Lord had him there in Corinth teaching the word of God among them. And I think that that's an important note here. It's not just that he was there. Luke notes what he was doing there. As he's establishing this new church, as he's planting this church, what do we see as his primary ministry? It was a Bible teaching ministry. A ministry of, of careful study of the Word of God. I think that that is an important note for the church today. Sadly, so many churches today have, have moved away from this. They've moved away from the, the simple teaching of God's Word. And, and so many times, we as the church, we, we begin to focus on, on programs, on, on social justice, on, on being relevant to the culture around us. Or other, other churches will focus on, on miracles, on, on signs and wonders, on, on having a good worship team, on, on dance teams, on homeless ministries, on all these different things. And understand, I'm not saying that any of those things are inherently wrong, or they're bad, or we shouldn't be engaged in those things. What I'm saying is, is those things cannot be the primary focus of a healthy church. The main focus has to be discipleship. It has to be the teaching of the saints. The equipping of God's people through careful study of the scriptures. Listen to what Paul tells the Ephesian church. It's Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. It says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, make, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies. So clever they sound like the truth. So Paul tells the church there in Ephesus, look, the Lord gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now look at all five of those categories. 
they all have something to do with the proclamation of the Word of God, don't they? They all have something to do with instruction in the Word. That's what God gave the church. That God's gift to the church was leaders who can instruct them in the Word to equip God's people for the work of the ministry. That's, that's the primary calling of the church. The primary calling of the church isn't to feed the homeless. The primary calling of the church isn't to engage in social justice programs. The primary calling calling of the church isn't to engage in all these different things. The primary calling of the church is to teach the Word of God. To proclaim the Word of God to the lost. To disciple the saved. Preparing believers for the work of the ministry. Paul says in verse 13, so that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. If a church is missing that, it cannot be a healthy church. Now, at our church here, you know, we might not have a lot of flash, right? We don't have a flag-waving ministry. We don't have a lot of exciting preaching, right? Right, jump around and wave my white coat and, and blow on people and knock them down. It's just Jesus. And I don't mean just Jesus, like, sorry, we're out of everything else. It's just Jesus. I mean, it's only Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You'll get the simple, plain teaching of God's Word on a consistent basis. We will go through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and learn what the Bible says about how we're to live, and how we're to love, and how we're to worship. And that's what Paul did during his time in Corinth. Verse 12. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So there's this change in the local government. This guy, Galileo, becomes the new governor of Achaia. And Achaia is, remember that, that southern state, that southern region in Greece where Corinth is located. And so as this new governor comes in, the Jews decide that this might be a good time to try and rid themselves of their arch nemesis, Paul, right? And, and they find that they have this this new ruler, and they're hoping that he might be wanting to please the people. And so they go before Galileo and say, look, this guy Paul, he's, he's persuading people to, to worship God in a way that we don't like. And verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a, a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. 
So Paul here, he's getting ready to defend himself. And the governor says, listen, get out of here. I don't really care about this. Don't waste my time. He says, look, if there was a crime being committed, if there was a carjacking, right, if someone got robbed or murdered, then you could come talk to me. But you're here arguing about words and names and customs, and, and frankly, I don't care. Figure it out by yourselves. Get out of my courtroom. Now, I want to note something here. God was faithful, wasn't he? God kept his word to Paul. Remember back in verse 10. He says, look, these guys, they, they, they want to harm you, Paul, but I'm not going to let them. Now, often, the Jews were able to get the local authorities to, to sort of to do their bidding, right? But it didn't happen here because God had made a promise. God kept his word, and no harm came to Paul. In verse 17, And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So this guy, Galileo, he's the, the brother of the famous Roman philosopher Seneca. And by all accounts, Galileo was, was known to be a pretty fair-minded guy. He was a decent ruler. He, he passed fair judgments. But here he lets this innocent man, Sothenes, get beat up right in the middle of the courtroom. And he just watches it. Now, I don't know, maybe he was having an off day. Maybe his wife overcooked the pot roast. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he doesn't stop this from happening. Paul, however, escaped harm because God is sovereign. Paul escaped harm because God is absolutely in control. Paul escaped harm because nothing can touch a believer apart from the will of God. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. So Paul stays for a while after this, and finally the Lord shows Paul that it's time to move on. And he heads off to Centria. And it says that he, that, he, that he shaved his head, that he cut off his hair. And this is according to Jewish custom, sort of making the end of a vow. See, what happened was Paul had taken a Nazarite vow. And usually a Nazarite vow was for a period of 30 days. And what would happen is you would shave your head at the beginning of the vow, and then you didn't cut your hair until the end of the vow. And then you would shave your head again at the end of the vow. And during that time, you didn't touch anything dead. You didn't drink wine. You didn't even eat grapes or, or raisins. And, and the point of that was to avoid anything that might lead you to sin. And the idea was drunkenness is a sin. So I'm not going to drink wine. In fact, I'm not even going to eat grapes because... Grapes lead to wine. And the law, in fact, they wouldn't even eat raisins because raisins used to be grapes. 
And grapes can make grape juice. And grape juice can make wine. And wine can lead to drunkenness. And drunkenness is sin. And so the Nazarite vow was a thing where the person, for a period of time, totally committed themselves to the Lord. And they avoided sins, and they avoided temptations, and they focused on God. And you may recall that, that John the Baptist, as well as Samson, were both Nazarites from birth. They were Nazarites their whole life. Well, Samson was supposed to be. Remember, that didn't exactly work out for him. But he was supposed to have been a Nazarite from birth. Do you know who wasn't a Nazarite? Jesus. People often confuse this, don't they? Right? They, they um, confuse a Nazarite and a Nazarene. Right? Jesus was a Nazarene, not a Nazarite. Jesus was a Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. Right? Just like because we're from Washington, those of us who are, we are Washingtonians, right? Right? So Jesus wasn't a Nazarite he, that we know of. He didn't take that vow, right? He was a Nazarene. But, you know, we see in scriptures, Jesus drank wine, he touched the dead. Anyway, Paul's Nazarite vow ends, and he shaves his head. And after Paul visits the barber, him and his co-laborers, Priscilla and Aquila, they set sail. In verse 19, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul's first port of call was Ephesus. Now remember, previously he had left some of his ministry team behind in Ephesus to, to equip and to teach that church. Timothy had been left behind, and he's pastoring this church in Ephesus the whole time that Paul was in Corinth. And, and, and when Paul rolls into town again, as was his custom, he goes and he visits the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. And something interesting takes place here. They ask Paul to stay and continue to teach them. Right? They, they ask Paul to continue to minister to them. And Paul says, no, I, I can't right now. He says, Lord willing, I will come back later, but I have to be on my way. Now, there's a very important principle here. Typically in a church, in any church, anywhere, a very small percentage of the people in the church do most of the work in the church. People who, who study ministry refer to this as the 20-80 rule. And, and that is 80% of the work in a church 
is done by 20% of the people in the church. And what happens is the 80% of the people not doing anything, the 80% of the people not, not serving, they always have ideas. You know, we should do this. We should do that. And when they say, we should do this, we should do that, what they mean is, you should do this. You should do that. It's the people who are already doing the most who get asked to do more by people who aren't doing anything. And, and, and that's sort of par for the course. That's just life and ministry. That's not going to change. But here's the point. Each one of us, as servants of God, we need to know what the Lord is calling us to do. Because there are always a million things to do. There are a million different ministry opportunities. And there are always people telling you what you need to do and what you should be doing. What you need to do is to be able to turn down the volume on all the other voices around you. And you need to know what the Lord is calling you to do. Because here's the thing. When you get your hands in too many things, right? when, you, when you take on too much, when you're stirring too many pots, you get spread thin, right? And what happens when you get spread too thin? You don't do anything well. You're busy doing and doing and doing, but you're not doing anything well. My, my jiu-jitsu coach is always saying something to this effect. He says, you can pick one thing and get really good at it, or you can do everything and suck. Right? He says, you can do every technique and just be okay at it, or you can focus on one set of techniques and get really good at them. And ministry, serving the Lord, is sort of the same principle. You can be busy doing and doing and doing and doing nothing well. You can get so busy that you can't really focus on that thing that the Lord is calling you to do. And the idea is this. Each one of us needs to figure out that, that one or two or three things that the Lord is, is definitely calling you to do. And do those things well. Do those things wholeheartedly. There's always something more to do. There's always somebody telling you what you should be doing. That's never going to change. But you and I, we need to know what God is calling us to do. And to focus on that. And Paul knew. I mean... This seemed like a good thing, right? People wanting him to stay and teach the Bible. That's what he did. He was a Bible teacher. We just saw him do that in Corinth. And on the surface, it, it seemed to make sense. But it wasn't what the Lord had for him at that moment. You and I, we can't fill every need in the church. All we can do is what the Lord calls us to do. 
And you know what? There might be other needs. And sometimes we feel this pressure to, to get it done because nobody else is doing it. And sometimes you have to stretch yourself a little bit. But sometimes you have to say, well, you know what? That's not what I'm called to do. It's the Lord's church, and if he wants it done, he'll bring somebody to do it. Because I'm going to focus on what he's called me to do. It's okay to say no to good things if those good things aren't what God is calling you to. So Paul tells him, he says, look, I'll come back later if God is willing. Paul says, you know, I'd like to stay, but it's not a matter of what I want to do. It's what does God want me to do? I think Jesus exampled this best in the garden, didn't he? On the night that he was betrayed. Remember, he's praying and he says, Lord, he says, Father, if there's, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. I don't want to go to the cross. But then remember what he says. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. When we give our lives to Christ, we're giving our lives to Christ. Right? It's no longer ours. When we give our life to Christ, our life, our will, it doesn't belong to us anymore. It, it belongs to Him. We become servants. Remember we talked of that word servant, doulos. It means a bond servant. It means a slave. And very often in those days, when a slave was set free, often slaves had a, a period of servitude. And after their period of servitude, they would be set free. And, and oftentimes when the slave was set free, he would say, you know what? And I love my master. He's, he's good to me. He, he takes care of me. I don't want to leave my master. And he would become a bondservant. And what that meant was he, he willingly chose to serve his master. And they would take that bondservant out and they would take this metal awl and they would drive it through his ear. You know, people have gauges in their ear. That's, that's what these bondservants would get. And it was a mark that they were a, they were a slave, but they were a slave by choice. Because they love their master. And that's what we are. We're slaves. Because we love our master. And the slave, as we've said before, has only one purpose. And that purpose is to do the will of his master. When we give our lives to Jesus, when we become his bond slaves, our only purpose, our only reason to exist is to obey His commands. That's it. And Paul recognizes this. You know, all these voices, all these needs, trying to pull Him in different directions, all these seemingly good things. And he had to push all that aside and figure out what, was, what God was calling him to do and do that. After spending some time there, verse 23, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul, 
he visits his home church for a while there in, in Antioch, Assyria. And then he goes back out to visit some of the other, other churches that he started, checking up on them, encouraging them in their faith. Now, a lot of you guys, in the back of your Bibles, you have a bunch of maps back there, right? And typically, if you have a bunch of maps in the back of your Bibles, one of them is Paul's missionary journeys. right? It's got a map of, of, of Eastern Europe and Asia Minor there, and it's got you know the red and the blue and the green, Paul's first and second and third missionary journey. Well, in verse 23 here, this is the whole of Paul's third missionary journey. Right? We don't get a lot of details. It just says he went throughout the, the region of, of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And that one verse, it kind of glosses over 1,500 miles that Paul trekked on foot and on horseback and sailed, going throughout that region sharing the gospel. In the next five verses, as we finish out the chapter, we, we switch to another scene here. Apparently, during the interim, while Paul had moved on, his ministry partners, Priscilla and Aquila, had stayed behind to, to minister in Ephesus. And it says in verse 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. Competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Although he knew only the baptism of John. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I read verse 24, the first thing I think of is Apollo Creed. I, I, that just came to my mind. I don't even know why I mentioned that. I just think of him there in Rocky in those American flag boxing shorts. After Paul leaves Ephesus, this guy named Apollo shows up. And Apollos, he was a Hellenistic, that's a Greek-speaking Jew. And he came from Egypt to Ephesus. And apparently, according to Scripture, he was a he was a gifted public speaker. He was an eloquent man, well-spoken. The Greek word there is logios. It means a man of words or a, a man of ideas. Apollos, he was a, a dynamic guy. This is a guy who could, who could hold the crowd's attention. It says that he, he knew the scriptures well. And verse 25 says that he had been taught the way of the Lord. Now, we don't know a ton about this guy. He was a Greek-speaking Jew from Egypt, and he had studied the Old Testament in depth. And somewhere through that process, he had, he had been taught the teachings of Jesus. Now, we don't know who taught him, how he learned these things. We don't know if, if maybe somebody from Jerusalem who had encountered Jesus taught him. We don't know what happened. But somehow this man came to a knowledge of Jesus. And it says, And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. The NLT says, And he taught others about Jesus, 
with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. What he had learned about Jesus, he was sharing with others. Right? He, was, he was excited that he had come to know who the Messiah was. He was accurately teaching all that he knew. However, Luke notes, he only knew about John's baptism. Apollos believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He had heard John teach the, the message of repentance. He had maybe heard some of Jesus' teaching, but he either didn't know or didn't understand the significance of, of the death of Jesus and the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to the church. Everything that Apollos was teaching about Jesus was correct. He wasn't in error in the things that he was teaching. He just didn't have the full picture. He didn't understand all there was to understand about Jesus yet. Right? It makes it clear that he didn't understand what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was. How he, how he comes into the lives of believers and how he, he when he comes upon us, he, he empowers us for ministry. He didn't understand the, the, the filling and the empowering and, and all the different ministries of the Holy Spirit. In verse 26 it says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Priscilla and Aquila, they hear Apollos teaching. And they get angry. What are you doing here in Ephesus? This is our territory. This is our church. You don't even know the whole story, loser. That's not what happened at all. Right? They realize that they were on the same team. And they realize that Apollos didn't have the whole story. That his doctrine is a little bit off. So what do they do? They take him aside. It says they help him to understand the Bible more accurately. I like this about Priscilla and Aquila. They weren't afraid to speak up. They weren't afraid to tell the truth. But when they did, they did it with gentleness. They did it with love. But they set Apollo straight. I heard someone talk about this once, about how to know whether or not it's the right time to, to speak up and to confront someone. Usually, they said, the time to speak up and to confront someone is when you don't want to do it. Usually, when you want to speak up and confront someone, that's the time when you should keep your mouth shut. We should just be quiet, right? You know, the idea is you could sort of let your flesh guide you in this matter. Generally, our flesh is going to direct us to do the exact opposite of what we should do. So, so see what your flesh, see what the natural man wants to do, and do the opposite of that. Right? If you know that you should address an issue and you don't want to address it, you're probably supposed to. But if you want with all your heart to tell somebody how wrong they are, 
it's probably best just to remain silent, isn't it? Let's just be quiet. Second, as the people of God, when we hear someone incorrectly teaching about Jesus, incorrectly teaching the scriptures, we need to speak up in love with respect, but we need to pull them aside and, and more fully explain what the Bible says. Oftentimes when people are teaching wrong things, they're doing it with the right heart. They want to serve Jesus, they just don't have all the information. Maybe they went to a church that didn't fully teach the Bible. Maybe they went to a church that didn't teach them to, to study and read the Bible on their own. And there's a time when we, as, as more mature believers, need to lovingly take people aside and say, Look, I, I see your heart, I see you love Jesus, but you're a little off in this. This is what the scripture says. They may listen, and they may not. But at least we have been faithful in what the Lord has called us to do. Verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia again, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Apollos, he begins to minister. And the Bible says that he was of great benefit. That he was useful to the church there. He was able to debate with the, the unbelieving Jews and prove that the, the gospel was true. And to prove that through, through the Old Testament that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. I want to close with this. Apollos was able to defend the faith and he was able to proclaim the gospel and he was able to talk about Jesus being the Messiah because he had a thorough understanding of the Word of God. Apollos had spent long hours reading and studying the Word of God on his own. This man had the Word of God hidden away in his heart. Now listen carefully. If you want to be used by God, this is essential. This is more important than anything else that I can tell you. If you want to be used by God, Study the Bible. Read the Bible. Hide the Word of God away in your heart. And it's hard sometimes. We get so busy, we don't have time to read the Bible. I mean, we've got Facebook statuses to update. We've got another TikTok video we have to make. We need to post on Instagram. It's hard to read the Bible because we have so many football games to watch. We have to catch up on the housewives of wherever. Right? Make time for the Bible. Make time for Jesus. It's the only thing that's going to last. All that other stuff, it's going to fade away. It's going to burn up. Nothing else really matters. 
except abiding in Christ and drawing your strength from the Word, spending time with God. Everything else is going to melt away in eternity except the things we do for God. And if you don't know Jesus, nothing else matters you don't know Jesus, don't delay. Nothing else matters until you, you understand that, that He loves you. That you're a sinner, but He died in your place. He died to pay the cost of your sins. He died so that you could find new life in Him. If you don't know Jesus, turn from your sin. Repent. Call in the name of the Lord Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in what wasn't a particularly exciting passage, there are so many exciting truths, Lord, as we, as we dig in and find out who you are. So, Lord, we pray that you would, you would help us to, to really apply these truths to our life. Find out what it is you're calling us to do and to do that, Lord. We pray that you would help us to become students of the word, to study your law, to hide it away in our hearts. We ask that in your name, Jesus.